1: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers about her highly acclaimed new book, They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. And Dr. Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers is the assistant professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley. And she's also the winner of the 2013 Lerner Scott Prize Prize For best doctoral dissertation in U.S. women's history, welcome to the show, Dr. Stephanie E. Jones (laughs) Rogers.
2: Thank you so much, Adam.
1: Yeah, you know, I got I got to make sure I put some respect on your name. I got to (laughs) make sure I I, I get all the names up in there. (laughs) That's right. And so, (laughs) yeah. And so, um, before we get um into your book, can you talk to us about how you came to this project?
2: Sure. So um, in 2009, I was um, in graduate school at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and I was also preparing for um, my oral examinations or my my comprehensive examinations. And so I was reading all this material um, in the field of African-American history, which is my specialty, but I was also taking courses in women's and gender history. And so, as I was reading the scholarship that um, African American historians had, um, or historians of the ac- African American experience had um, had produced, alongside those about white Southern women, I found that there was this kind of frustrating disconnect between the scholarship around the issue of whether white women invested economically in African Americans' continued enslavement and subjugation. And so, that frustration really led me to ask the question: like, why is there this disconnect? Why does there seem to be these, why do there seem to be these two um, kind of narratives that, um, that are kind of trudging along simultaneously, but don't seem to be connecting around the issue of economic, the economy of American slavery when it comes to white women's roles and investments in um, the the system of American slavery. And so that led me to, um, to to think through those questions and to try to find answers to those questions. And so the sources I I found were really um, at the key of of that, at the core of that that issue, and um, also led me um, to start to think deeply about the kinds of sources that these um, separate fields of study, the historians in these separate fields of study were using. And so it was remarkable to me that when it came to those scholars who looked at the experiences of enslaved African-Americans and formerly enslaved African-Americans, they were using um, these interviews that the federal government um, conducted in the 1930s um, during the Great Depression um, with formerly enslaved people who were telling their their individual experiences, telling their indiv- individual stories about enslavement and bondage, but also talking about the experiences of their family members in bondage as well as members of their communities. And at the same time, white southern uh, historians of white Southern women were using primarily the letters and the diaries of um, white Southern women. And so by using these very different um, source bases, these um, different archival documents, what you find is that they came up with very different stories and narratives around the issue of uh, white women's um, economic relationship to the institution of slavery. Um, and so that led me to really um to, to look elsewhere um for additional documents to corroborate what formerly enslaved people had to say about um, white women's because in their in their interviews they were frequently talking about women who owned them women who bought and sold them or owned their family members and community members of their of the the enslaved community who had bought and sold um, members of the enslaved community and even um, it talked talked about um, being inherited by white Southern women. Um, and so um, I took my cue from formerly enslaved people and what they had to say in those interviews. And I looked elsewhere in a variety of different um, kind of archival collections. Um, so I looked at legal documents. I looked at financial documents. I even looked at military documents for the, for the Civil War era um, to see if I could find evidence to support what formerly enslaved people had to say about these women's economic investments in their continued subjugation. and just, you know, I didn't expect it, but lo and behold, there were white women, um, white female slave owners throughout um, all of these sources um, who were basically corroborating, these documents corroborated um, the details that formerly enslaved people were offering in those interviews with federal government employees. So um, it really started in graduate school. And, you know, it's taken me this long to really, to craft, you know, the story that um, I, I, I offer in um in the book. Um, but that's really where it started. It was really out of frustration that graduate student, you know, immersing myself, you know, in all of those, um all those books on our reading list and things and um, you know, and then trying to answer, you know, answer, trying to tr trying to deal with the frustration that emerged as I was um uh, working phenomenal. through all this. Phenomenal.
1: Books. And and considering uh you did your uh, graduate work, uh you said at at records, uh you said correct? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes that's right. right.
1: And so um was that the New Brunswick uh, or a newer? Okay.
2: Yes so yeah. So I should, I should also say that I went, I was Rutgers all the way. So I got my BA at Rutgers um, New Brunswick um, in psychology, which is really interesting. And then um, I was working full time. So I wasn't, I wasn't ready to kind of throw, you know, my hat completely in the ring, um, you know, for graduate study. So while I worked full time, I earned my master's in United States history at Rutgers Newark. And then I, pursued my PhD and earned my PhD from Rutgers New Brunswick. And I
1: mentioned that in part because um, as, as you now know, um, I'll actually be uh, matriculating next fall to Rutgers New Brunswick. in one of the first, Excellent. Oh, thought, oh what's up? well, Hey news. Um, And so uh, <laughs> hey, breaking <laughs> news on the airwaves, the new books in African-American <laughs> studies. Um, and, and yeah, you know, it's, Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure. And, um and, and like I said, you know, one of the first things that people told me when I, when I, you know, been telling them on the low that I was going was that which campus. And so like, that's when why we just said uh, um, uh, Rutgers. Mm-hmm. I was like, eh, I think I know what she's talking about, but just mm-hmm. to clarify for those mm-hmm. uninitiated to uh, Rutgers and, you know, the phenomenal folks who are, who are uh, at, at mm-hmm. the institution Shouts out to Dr. Deborah Gray White, uh, as well as well as you know Dr. Fuentes and Dr. Dunbar and Dr. Merchant, and the entire AFAM caucus. Um, and so you know yes. try to get them all there. And so um, with that, can you talk to us a bit about um, because we obviously you know we all know about the the pioneering work of uh, Dr. Deborah Gray White um, and the study of, of Black women uh, during the time of the, of enslavement. Um, and so can you talk to us a bit about the challenges that you encountered uh, whether through archi- whether through the archival work that you did, um, through the writing process? what just generally, what were some of the uh, challenges in, uh, that you encountered with with taking on such a a tremendous tremendous topic, but a tremendously tough topic obviously as well.
2: So I should also say that Dr. Deborah Ray White was my um my she was my undergraduate mentor and then she became my my um my doctoral um mentor and my doctoral dissertation committee chair. Um so I'm I'm a hundred percent with you on the shout outs. Um um but one of the things that um was part that kind of led to the frustration as well around um, you know, this question that I had about um, whether white women were deeply invested, economically invested in the institution of slavery and also um, the roles that they played as the um, legal title holders to, to um, African-Americans in the context of slavery was that many of the histories of slavery that existed at that point, um, prevailing histories of slavery, um, basically, you know, said that, you know, I wouldn't find white women in the sources, so, um, for example, one of the most kind of um, um, influential books for me when I was in grad school was Walter Johnson's Soul by Soul, Life Inside the Antebellum Slave Market. And so reading that book, um, you know, he, he argued that white women um, didn't go to the slave market because it was a perceived site a site of perceived sexual um, and social disorder and it wasn't a, pl- a place for white lady to a white lady to be and so you know, many people took his lead, many people um, kind of took that assertion and assumed that it was, in fact, the case that, you know, you wouldn't find white Southern women in Southern slave markets, either as observers, but also as buyers or sellers, or as, you know, individuals who benefited either indirectly because they, you know, um, operated businesses or provided, you know, commercial services to slave traders, or because they were actually involved in the kind of profit making um, trade. Um, trade in um, enslaved African Americans, and so you know, I I was not sure I could even do this project because many of the many of the you know the studies that had come before mine you know basically gave me no reason to believe that I would find you know in a, a number of women so many women that I could in fact write a, a full dissertation and then a book on white women's economic investments in the institution of slavery, and so. The, the i think the main the main um kind of issue that I, I faced initially was where do i find them where do i look you know because initially i did go to the place where you would assume you'd find women white women talking about their economic investments in the institution i went to their letters and their diaries because you would imagine that okay so since this is like a you know a very dark you know a, you know from the scholarship you know this is kind of very kind of gruesome and kind of sexually um explicit um uh, business that, you know, white women wouldn't be out, in, out and open, you know, engaging in this kind of behavior and wouldn't, wouldn't be engaging in these kind of market activities. So maybe they would talk about it, you know, in their private letters and diaries. And so that was the first place I went. And I was just like, wait, they're not talking about these things Extensively, like you might find a woman, you know, saying in passing, "Oh, you know, I walked past the slave market today, or I saw a slave auction today, or oh yeah, you know, I heard that, you know, so and so bought a, a an enslaved, a, a, you know, a servant, which because they rarely ever said slave in in their uh, letters and in doc- documents." Um, I, I heard so and so bought a servant for this amount of money. So they would mention it in passing, but there was no kind of consistent engagement in kind of a thinking around the market in African Americans and their purchase and sale in purchase and sale of these individuals. And so I was, you know, disillusioned initially because it's like, well, maybe they're right because these white women, maybe historians are right, because these white women are not really talking extensively about their engagement in slave market activities. And so that was disillusioning at first, but then I kept remembering what these formerly enslaved people were saying over and over again in a variety of different ways about the ways in which white females were deeply and profoundly invested in the economy of American slavery. And so Again, I went back to those documents and said, okay, well, they're talking about women who refer to owning them by law. You know, so I'm like, well, maybe maybe I should look at the legal documents. And so I looked at the legal documents. And so I started to kind of, instead of looking for the terminology that we, we're familiar with to um, when we describe certain dimensions of slavery, I started to try to understand how formerly enslaved people talked about these dimensions of American slavery. So did they talk about the law? Sometimes, but when they did talk about the law, sometimes they didn't. They didn't. They weren't explicit about it. So I had to basically learn um, kind of the vernacular um, and the nomenclature that formerly enslaved people used to talk about these things. I had to learn and understand how they talked about enslavement in order to understand where to look. You know, so there were some hurdles that when I tried hard enough, weren't really hurdles in the end, you know, but initially the, the kind of the, the greatest, um, I thought, you know, obstacle that I thought I was going to have to face was not finding enough women in the sources, but they are everywhere in the sources, you know? So it was really, you know, just, I had to, I had to get over, you know, um, my, my hesitation, um, that was really kind of draw, you know, that, um, emerged as a consequence of reading a lot of studies of slavery that said that white women wouldn't be doing these kinds of things, that this was a man's business, you know. Um, And so once I got past that, it was really, you know, it was about how to talk about all that I was finding versus how do I talk about the little bit of stuff that I found? You know, so it was really that was really it was really interesting. Um, It was a challenge. But um, once I once I saw once I I developed a strategy and um, and that strategy was, you know, using. You know, using formerly enslaved people's testimony as my guide, you know, it became you know less of a less of a, a obstacle and more of a you know, <laughs> what do I do with this this abundance of stuff? You know, so yeah, but it was fun. It was like you know, I felt like a a private investigator slash journalist, slash, you know, investigative journalist. You know, um, so it was it was fun yeah. in some so, ways. So you got your I to um, B yeah.
1: and your Nicole Hannah Jones hats on. I, I see. <laughs> Okay, okay. Yes,
2: yes, I did, and, yeah. And interestingly yeah. enough,
1: yeah. both women, uh, uh, Ida B. Wells, Barnett, along with, uh, presently, Nicole Hannah-Jones, are three, uh, all y'all have, you know, all, all three of y'all have the hyphen. Um, uh, I didn't even think about that. But then also <laughs> thinking about how uh-huh. all of your work has been highly contested. Because in large part, mm-hmm. all three of y'all have directly, you know, gone at white women for their complicity in structures of power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, think about, and, and no, this, so this isn't necessarily, you know, directly pertinent to your work, but it's definitely around there in the sense of, you know, at the other end of the 19th century, Ida B. Wells Barnett is, you know, writing about, you know, white women being... As you know, they they are very much involved in the process of, of, of lynching because of them effectively lying on their um, on on their black male counterparts. Um, and,
2: and and yeah, I mean, I, I no no no, no. I'm you, sorry. no, you got it, you Go got ahead. it. I say really direct connections um between the work that the work that i I did for this book and some of the arguments that I make in this book and many of the arguments that Ida B. Wells Barnett made about what, not simply white women's complicity in um the atrocities perpetrated against African American men after slavery but also in the ways in which they were. They were some of they were fundamental to the development of a system of white supremacy post uh, post emancipation that led to these atrocities. That they were not simply um, bystanders, but were actually active participants in the development of a system of white supremacy, which would allow for the kind of white terror and racist terror that led to the lynching of African-American men. Um, And so what I see is that, you know, in in the slavery era, these aren't simply women who um, benefit indirectly from slavery or benefit indirectly from um, white men's ability to buy and sell enslaved people or to inherit enslaved people or to give enslaved people to their children or their family members. These are women who themselves benefit economically from the continued uh, enslavement and subjugation of African Americans and continue to invest in a system in order to allow for that system to be maintained and to perpetuate that system. And so after slavery is over, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the Civil War and Reconstruction chapters of the book is that, you know, white women over the course of their lives are receiving enslaved people, even from infancy, receiving enslaved people as gifts, whether at birthdays, Christmas time, or especially at um, when they get married. So they get these, you know, they get, uh, for for the wealthier um, slave owners, they get, you know, a number of enslaved people as a wedding present um, at their wedding receptions. And so over the course of their lives, these women are um, developing a, a gender identity, a identity as white Southern women, that's profoundly tied to either the promise of owning enslaved people or owning enslaved people in, in, in those moments. And so over the course of their lives, they are not simply economically invested, but their, their very identities as Southern people, as southern Southerners, is, is, is tied to their ownership of or their legal title, the legal holding of enslaved people as their own. So when the Civil War threatens that, that identity, threatens to abolish slavery, threatens to emancipate those individuals who are their wealth and often their primary source of wealth. They are not happy. And so after the Civil War is over, you see women threatening, white women, threatening newly freed African-Americans with profound violence. There's an account of a a African-American man who he enters into a contract with this, you know, um, with this white woman to work, work her land. And he gets, you know, a a share of the harvest at the end of the, at at the end of harvest time. So he's like, he, he comes, he's finished his work. He's like, okay, you know, where's my share? And she threatens to blow his brains out. If he does not leave her property in that instant, there are women who actually enact you know, um, racial violence against um, African Americans after slavery is over. And they're able to do this not simply because they're mad because their husbands lost, you know, the wealth that was bound up in African American people in slavery, but because they themselves lost the value that was bound up in those, the bodies of enslaved African Americans. And so when you see them in the postcards and the pictures that were taken at lynching rituals, you can see them smiling. You can see them gleeful as black men's bodies dangle from trees. There's one instance of Reuben Stacy in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which, you know, I'm sure you're not from there. But if you've seen there. those images,
1: yeah, I'm from Palm Beach County. Whoa.
2: So it's pretty close. Pretty much in your backyard, there's there's this um, these are these really infamous fa- photos of of Ruben Stacy hanging from a tree, and there are little white girls in their Sunday best, l- smiling at the camera as his body is dangling in the background. So these are not accidents. These women are they are architects. They are co-architects, co-conspirators in the this racially divided social order that car- continues to characterize our society today. And it and, and lynching was was a a part of that um, part of that investment. They were part of those rituals because they were fundamental to the development of and the perpetuation of white supremacy and black subjugation. You know, so I see a very, very close, very intimate, um, and and important connection between you know the work of Ida B. Wells saying you know these women are not victims, <laughs> you know these women are willingly having... Some of these women are willingly having sex with Black men, and then when they get caught, they are throwing Black men under the bus, to use our modern terminology. So I see some very, very clear connections between the work that I've done and I B. Wells Barnett's work, even though, of course, she is the queen, (laughs) and so I could never, you know, like, really ever, you know... But, but yeah, I see some very, very, very close um, and deep connections. She also,
1: correct me if I'm wrong, she was born um, enslaved herself. Was it... She was born in Holly Springs... And uh, yes, was it was. 1862, 1863. Uh and and so mm-hmm. you know she was mm-hmm. someone who uh, in eighteen sixty two ain't nobody nobody truly knew, uh, you know what what the future held for for, for slavery uh, in in North mm-hmm. America, and so um, you know that's why I am very Absolutely. happy that I you know. Uh, maybe, 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 uh, uh, mama Ida was, you know, she, 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 she's, she's here. We just can't see her, <laughs> but her, her presence is, you know, uh, so That's here, right. she's definitely an ancestor. That's right. And so, um, you know, and, and, and Absolutely. also, uh, it's, it's also why I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your book right now and, and I have, you know, I have this beautiful copy of the book and I'm looking at the blurbs and, and just looking at the people who are on it, right. You just talked about you know, Walter Johnson, and you got uh, uh, Dr. Sinhad, Dr. Mm -hmm. Donnie Remy-Berry, Edward E. Baptist, and Mm -hmm. and Dr. Tara Hunter, all five people who have had Mm -hmm. prize-winning monumental works published in really the last five years. And it's beautiful to see Mm -hmm. the community that's involved in writing books. And it's why I tell folks, if you really want to know like if you really want to do a little little bit of that fun extra work, but ain't really extra read the acknowledgements because then you get to see, especially before. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, so, so when I read mm-hmm. your acknowledgements, I'm able to then see mm-hmm. and read and, and be able to have these, you know, connections, you know, really, uh, start to pop off and think like, Oh, this might be where Dr. Stephanie uh, E. Jones Rogers is, you know, conversing with, you know, such and such. And it's a really beautiful thing to see too, especially as mm-hmm. someone who I just told you, who is mm-hmm. writing, you know, an in, in article length uh, a paper this semester. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> is it ever going to end? But then it's like, God oh, dude, you got to reach out, man. Mm-hmm. God just didn't care about it, man. You got to reach out because, mm-hmm. you know, you never know who's listening, but you mm-hmm. also never know who might be the resource or you might be the resource for someone um, going mm-hmm. forward uh, with, with work. It's, it's a community. Absolutely. That's, what, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about.
2: Absolutely. 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 And, you know, I should, I, I you know, just as an aside, it's not really, well, not, well, it's sort of related to the book, but, you know, um, in the acknowledgments, I'm kind of very candid about you know, my past and the kind of Black person, Black woman that I am and my background and stuff like that. And that was intentional because, you know, there are these ideas that, you know, that people who, you know, that make their, Black people who make their way through the academy are the most privileged of us, you know, are the most privileged of the Black community. And that's not always the case. But one of the other things that I think I wanted to make clear in the is that. there were so many scholars in the field that were when I asked, willing to read a read a paragraph, read a chapter, read a you know um, comment on a paper at a panel, etc., and so it was through those connections, through you know asking somebody if they might have a few you know a, a, like a day or whatever to look at something, or you know asking somebody to comment on a panel or chair a panel, and circulating my work and putting my you know kind of exposing myself in those ways, taking those risks, which are you know really scary moments for a grad student um, to to have. Um, it was through those 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 moments, through those those opportunities those um, events or instant instances in which I made these connections in the first place. So it was as a graduate student that I met Manisha Senha, um, Tara Hunter. I met later, but like even Walter Johnson, I met him as a graduate student. You know, he was a commentator on a paper that was that became a chapter in the book. You know, so there. You know, as a graduate student, I you know I knew that you know being I you know being as isolated as we are, you know, as graduate students being isolated as we are as scholars that focus on you know people who are past already you know we have to sometimes we have to you know expose ourselves you know to to criticism or critique and and hope that you know we will improve our work we will refine our work and polish our work and make our work even better but it's through those those risk-taking moments that you develop these relationships that end up you know having people you know read the book later on and say wow you know she really you know she really did what she needed to do to get this book where you know get this piece of the book that I read you know where I suggested it you know to go or where I you know the vision I see her vision now you know so um You know, for those of your listeners that are graduate students or are undergrads that are going into graduate programs, you know, um, protect your work because you know there are some, you know, some shady people out there that might take it. But you know, yeah, but but in general, like you know, go to you know propose, you know, a paper or a panel for a graduate student conference, you know, throw your work out there for the AHA or the OEH, you know, um, and just, in the Asala, you know, Asala was my very first conference, um, the, um, the association of, um, the study of African-American life in history. That was my very first major conference. So, and all of these moments were supportive moments, um, but helped me to, to kind of push, push past, you know, little, um, obstacles and stuff as I wrote, wrote the dissertation and then wrote the book. So, um, those are useful for other reasons. And those reasons are, you know, you get to kind of foster and cultivate these organic relationships, not these forced strategic relationships that you hope to make with, you know, um, create with, you know, um, kind of, you know, well-known scholars, but organic relationships that develop over time. And that could lead to mentorship and things like that.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: There, there it is. There it is, y'all. Yeah, you heard it first. You heard it first from 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 uh. The phenomenal, the phenomenal <laughs> Dr. Stephanie E. Jones Rogers, <laughs> and also I just I I, looked, I took another glance at your acknowledgements. I knew you there was something about you because you got you got family from North Carolina, so you you got to be cool. You know you 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 got to be <laughs> cool uh, because that's where my family on my um on my mom's side is from from uh, mm-hmm. the coast and uh, the Cape Fear region in North Carolina, and so you know mm-hmm. that, that's that's where my family hails from and uh okay and yeah so you know um and and actually I did have uh I have another question for you about your text going back to the text um okay i'm i'm thinking about this this question about you know we talked about challenges and we talked about the community as well but let, let, let's also talk about what were some of right so so you talked about writing this you know during the time of your dissertation and you know maybe a a chapter came to you you know at another time and you know a lot of times you know we we build up over the course of a long time to to obviously these larger projects so from from that time from the from the genesis of the of the project to now what has surprised you after doing all this research right because you know it, it's the, the to be to be to me the surprises are sometimes the, the coolest, you know, questions to be able to, you know, be able to sift through, um, as well. And so, so yeah, you know, please, please talk to us a bit about some, some things that surprised you about, uh, uh, any, any part of the process.
2: So I think the part that surprised me, um, the most is when I, and it sh- the thing was, the, the surprise shouldn't have been a surprise, I guess. Um, but, you know, with kind of the way that we're socialized around these issues that I'll, you know, mention, um, I, I wish surprise. So as I, as I, um, I was actually, um, I took over a class for Mia Bay, who also, who was formerly at um, Rutgers, um, because she went on academic leave. And so I decided, you know, she asked me to teach the first half of the African American History Survey. And so one of my students you know asked i was talking about black motherhood and black women's experiences of as as mothers in the context of slavery and so one of my students you know i was talking about how enslaved women sometimes um served as wet nurses for um their mistress's children and so this one um student she she said well well that would mean that they would have to be lactating too and that would mean that they also had children and so like where are the children, you know, when they're doing all of this? And so, you know, I knew that there were instances in which, you know, enslaved women were separated from their children in order to serve and, you know, serve as in, uh, wet nurses for for their mistress's children. But I didn't know much beyond kind of like the contours of that conversation. And so her question led me to write an entire chapter on enslaved women's um, uh, being com- enslaved women, white women compelling enslaved women. To serve as wet nurses for their children, and when I began to ask questions, you know, approach the sources with questions about, you know, that that kind of labor, um, what I discovered was that as a part of that conversation, enslaved people would talk about how white women, some of these white women, weren't simply complicit in acts of sexual violence. So they weren't simply, you know, knowing that sexual violence, that white men were committing acts of sexual violence against enslaved women and turning their back or, you know, wringing their hands because they knew and they wished they could do something, but they couldn't do anything because of the patriarchy. But they were talking about white slave owning women who were orchestrating acts of sexual violence against them um or who knew that these that there were instances in which um enslaved women or females young young women were coming to white slave owning women and were appealing to them for help and these white women were saying no you need to subject yourself to this, this this these acts because you're you don't belong to me you belong to my husband so as part of that kind of the the kind of bundle of rights associated with slavery he can do whatever he wants with you, even if that means violate you sexually. So there were there were that was the most shocking, one of the most shocking things to me um when I started doing when I started writing that chapter is that you know you have enslaved people talking about um being you know being compelled to serve as wet nurses and being separated from their children. In order for them to be able to serve in this capacity to white children. um, But you also have them talking about the fact that, you know, oh, you know, for example, there are instances in which formerly enslaved people said, oh, you know, um, my mother served as the wet nurse for my mistress um, every time she had a child because she would have a child around the same time. And then there were instances in which they would reveal that some of those conceptions were, in fact, um, the consequence of rape. So they were talking about white women. Um, And and the roles that they played in acts of sexual violence, the direct um, and active roles that they were playing in acts of sexual violence perpetrated against um, them and women that they knew. Um, And I did not expect that. And so when I read those things... You know, I initially, I didn't know what to do with that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, besides just tell it, besides just say, you know, we've been thinking about sexual violence as something that only men could perpetrate against enslaved women. But enslaved people are saying something very different. And so you need to know what they're saying about The roles that white women played in acts of sexual violence, um, both indirectly, but also directly. And there were also instances in which, um, you know, enslaved women would go to their mistresses and say, your son is trying to have sex with me. And she would say, well, why are you resisting him? If you resist him again, I will punish you. And if she resisted, she would punish her. Um, so there, there are these kind of really complex ways that formerly enslaved people talk about sexual violence that don't fit into our conceptualizations of sexual violence, even today, you know, so that was like, I think the biggest shock for me, the biggest surprise for me as I did the work for this book.
1: I also think about, um, you had on page 104 at the bottom, uh, when we talk about parts that were just utterly surprising or just more so grotesque was, um, at at the last, uh, the last sentence uh, from 104 going into 105, and it reads: These white women were instrumental in creating a market for enslaved wet nurses' labor. In doing so, they helped augment the potential value of enslaved women within southern slave markets more broadly. That part hit me like I was reading. I was like, "Dag, that is obviously it, like, like you said before." It shouldn't be surprising, but good God Almighty, mm-hmm. it just it just mm-hmm. hits you because, um, when I think about you know the point that you you brought up, uh, the, or rather the point that your that your student brought up, uh, for, from the from the survey course, that was actually a question that I had because I, you know I, I'm not um attuned to uh you know the ways of of, of rearing and such uh, not yet anyway um and so. As a result, that question about uh, suckling was was one that I had about. Hold on, look, look, like I was trying to connect. You know, we, you know, sometimes we you're trying to connect something, that it don't, it don't, it don't fit. You mm-hmm. know, at least in in, in your mind. Mm-hmm. And and that part was was something that mm-hmm. did as well. And it's it's wild as to to think about that along with the point um that I wrote down about the uh, about white women using enslaved women's breasts uh, during times when their child should be, you know, breastfeeding from them to effectively keep up the aesthetics mm-hmm. uh, of of, of mm-hmm. their, mm-hmm. Of, of, of their breasts as well. That was like, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it shouldn't be surprising, but it is.
2: And, you know, one of the reasons why it is surprising is because or continues to be surprising is because, there are studies of of white Southern motherhood and white women's experiences in the South as mothers that argue very explicitly and very directly that white women only used enslaved women as wet nurses as a last resort. And so there are countless studies that make that argument and then those that follow that build on that argument or take that argument as, as truth. And so Again, I was like, but that's not what formerly enslaved people are saying in their interviews. They're talking about when their mothers were basic. That's all the work that they did in slavery, where that's all they did was served served as wet nurses. So I was just like, you know what? You know, I'm kind of feeling like I need to look more deeply into this. And so, again, I had to learn how formerly enslaved people talked about wet nursing. Sometimes they said wet nurse. Sometimes they refer to an enslaved woman as a wet nurse, but what they would often do is use other terms to describe the practice. So I had to learn the terminology and then look for that terminology in their interviews. And so by doing that, I found all of these other instances in which African-Americans, formerly enslaved African-Americans were describing white women's use of enslaved women as wet nurses in a variety of circumstances, not simply when, you know, there was a medical issue, you know, related to, um, you know, that prevented them from, you know, producing, you know, enough milk or producing any milk or, or what have you, but like you said, when they simply didn't want their breasts to fall and that was a quote from a formerly enslaved person that said you know white women used enslaved people all the time enslaved women as wet nurses all the time because they didn't want their breasts to fall you know um talked about the shame that some women you know um felt when they would have visitors over and their little white toddlers would go to their enslaved you know the enslaved woman who was wet nursing them and say hey I'm, i'm hungry you know come on give me titty like literally, that was a quotation from one of the one of the accounts, and so you know by 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 listening, by trying to understand the the experience of enslavement from the the perspective that the enslaved requires that we also understand how they talked about it, and not impose our like contemporary terms on that. But also, I was just like, okay, this is just too rampant. This is just too extensive. Um, a discussion in the sources, in these interviews, for it to not have been um, even perhaps even bigger than that. And so what I did was I looked at Southern newspapers. And in Southern newspapers, here were ad after ad after ad seeking an enslaved wet nurse, asking for an enslaved woman to 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 be hired or bought just so that they could serve as wet nurses for white children. So there was a, when I talk about you know, a demand. White women were, there was such a demand for enslaved women's labor as wet nurses that there were white Southerners placing ads in newspapers, wanted ads in newspapers, looking for enslaved women to serve as wet nurses for their children. And so again, by listening to what formerly enslaved people were saying about the practice, it led me to these other sources that showed that there was in fact an entire market around enslaved women's labor as wet nurses
1: tremendous but tremendously horrible because absolutely right and 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 i think about that be you know really all your points because when we try to think about the 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 balance of how we think about uh sexual violence and 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 maternal violence as well Mm -hmm. you know it, it it all you know it all connects back uh you know though in certain ways the the language may may be different but the the acts mm-hmm. and and their yes and their consequences for them uh for for the women mm-hmm. and uh psychologically to a certain degree to the children as well uh and and mm-hmm. and, and you know those points are all just 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 wild and And I'm sure the listeners who are are listening to this um, later on, they're going to be probably thinking the same thing, but then they're still going to go get the book because, you know, you got to go and support this, this tremendous, tremendous scholar named Dr. 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 Stephanie E. Jones (laughs) Rogers, who has been gracing the airwaves for her phenomenal book called They Were Her Property. And so, you know, you know, it's really in, in, it's a, it's a real interesting book and and also um let's let's pivot to pu- to to um to public culture a little bit i noticed that when okay. the book you know there were some there were some prominent blurbs for the book but then there were a couple articles written uh with through, through some publications mm-hmm. uh one of them being slate mm-hmm. and uh there, it mm-hmm. it caused you know, it, it caused a bit of a stir, shall we say. That that might be a little light. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. pushback have you gotten? Um, if, if you don't mind, you know, broaching this particular topic, of course, but mm-hmm. what has been some of that kind of popular pushback? Because I was looking at it, and I was like, uh, yeah, y'all may have known, but y'all ain't know like this, though. <laughs>
2: yeah so i think there's kind of two two responses that are well three responses that i've basically gotten um from the book um and and one one response is really to um in relationship to the the slate.com piece and the boston globe piece which um they did a review of the book the authors rebecca onion and renee graham did um reviews of the book but they were also interested in kind of the contemporary resonances, the ways in which the book spoke to um, our, our contempor- contemporary moments and events that were unfolding in the present. And, and they particularly were interested in the ways in which what I talk about in the book might also be connected to, um, in this particular case, white white women's um support for Trump and and candidates that um are very much um kind of in the same mold as as Trump, like Brian Kemp in Georgia, for example. And so, you know, they asked me about, you know, whether I saw parallels and or connections. And I I, I was very honest with them that, yes, I think, you know, there's this way in which, you know, um, um we we as Americans um have this narrative of our history that it you know, we we kind of see something that's you see these these horrible things that are happening, you know, in the nineteenth century and before, you know, from colonial period to the nineteenth century, um, you know, in the context of slavery and we say, Oh, how horrible we were and then like the twentieth century up until like the civil the, like the civil rights movement is like we rarely ever hear about what's going on you know about what's going on to black people you know really up up until like the civil rights movement and then we hear about black people again and then you know we hear about the voting rights act the civil rights act and it's just like okay you know like we're better now and so so there's this way in which like the first half essentially of the 20th century kind of drops out of the conversation around kind of racial injustice and white supremacy um when it comes to white women especially um in our kind of in our imaginary about our history, our narrative, the narrative of of our, our of our experiences in America, and so I think by in that way, and and I mean of course there there are exceptions to the rule, but I think in general by by. It, kind of ignoring that part of the 20th century we we don't see the continuities from you know when it comes to white women's investments in white and white supremacy and the roles that they play in in constructing and perpetuating the system of white supremacy in that era like it it, it makes it seem like okay that they, like they're not doing anything for the first half of the 20th century and then all of a sudden you know maybe around the civil rights movement you can see white women kind of getting angry about integration they get angry you know about you um, you know, um, some of the, the politics of the 80s and the 90s, and then we start to see them vote, you know, for Trump. And it's like, what the hell happened? What are they doing? Why are they doing this? And so for me, it's like, okay, if you look at what, as I said, you know, in the post emancipation era, when you think about the fact that there are slave owning women who who have lost all of their wealth, because enslaved people are now free people, they are angry and they're angry at Black people, <laughs> really, really angry at Black people. And so it, beco- it behooves them to invest even more deeply in um, white supremacy and a racially divided social order um, in the 20th century, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. So when you chart, those investments, you see that they, they do not, they don't subside. Those, they are at pivotal moments and junctures in American history, investing very deeply in white supremacy, um, um, supporting and also participating in acts of racial terrorism. um, And then up to the present, showing that when it comes to, um, you know, um, when when they have a choice as to whether to um embrace the power that comes with with whiteness embrace the power and the privilege that comes with white supremacy or to uh, ally themselves and ally, and and create and forge alliances with people who are oppressed because of gender or because of some other you know um other element of their identities there are many instances in which you know white women um and we saw this with the election of trump and we saw this with the election of roy moore and and brian kemp they choose white supremacy because white supremacy affords them a power that they don't have as as women when you take away race and so that is very much what happened in the context of slavery and so when i said those kinds of things you know in the slate piece and in the uh, in the boston globe piece i received emails mostly from white men who were very, very angry and called me very bad things. <laughs> I was called a racist bitch. Oh, and I was on CNN as well. And I said some of these same things. And I was called a racist bitch. I was called the chunky retard. I mean, and these are their quotes from their their emails. Um, and I also received emails from, you know, um, white women who, you know, felt like I, I was I t- and I also always say that this is not an indictment of all white women. I always say that. And I'm saying that again. But, I, you know, then I got you know, emails from white women who were like, that's not me. You know, I, I, they might explain why they voted for Trump, or they might say they didn't vote for Trump. Um, and then also, you know, when it came to coverage of the book, which is more recent, just explicit coverage of the book and not asking about contemporary um, connections that I might make. Um, you know, I had individuals who were like, we already know that white women were invested in slavery. You know, so this is not a big deal. I've had actually prominent historians make make that argument and say, oh, you're basically saying the same thing that these other, you know, enlisted, you know, names of historians, other historians, these other people said the same thing. Why is this a big deal now? You, they already said this. Um, and so I, I've chalked that up to, you know, this kind of. We live in this moment of, you know, kind of social media moment where people read, you know, they read titles of, of of articles that are in their news feeds and they assume that they know everything that is, you know, listed in that, you know, you know, listed in the article or that's behind the title or what have you and make all these assumptions and so rather than reading <laughs> you know, they read the title and assume. And then of course you have, and then I've I've gotten overwhelming support of the book. Um, and that far outweighs the criticism um that I've received. And so, you know, I'm just really great grateful for the people who chose to read <laughs> and chose to kind of, you know, kind of reckon with, you know, some of the details that I provide in the book or that I might say in, in our, um in interviews and stuff like that. And and acknowledge that, you know, I'm I'm saying something that makes sense you know and that they perhaps may not have known before so
1: and and that's why for me I I love your I love your book you know ain't, ain't no ain't no past tense uh, and so you know I actively uh, <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> love you. the text and so of, of course so and, and I saw the clip uh from you being on uh I think it was Don Lemon uh, tonight uh, if yeah. I'm, I'm saying right right and so mm-hmm. um you know, I saw that mm-hmm. piece and like I said, I saw the, the Slade and the and the Boston Globe uh, pieces and, and specifically the reactions. And it and it's so interesting because I, I saw a lot of um if you believe the avvies of the actual people and they're not in a Russian box, which they both can be still be still be true. Mm-hmm. Um and, and just thinking that if, if all that is true, then a lot of those folks are African Americans, uh, as well, which is you know the mm-hmm. the other part, which, yeah. You know I also think mm-hmm. are some of the same people that are gonna say you know we have too many slavery movies, um, and you know mm-hmm. which which mm-hmm. I'm sure we get mm-hmm. all the time. And so, um, you know mm-hmm. I, I I hear your dog uh, in the background, so that so that might be our <laughs> yes. that might be our uh. She's like um And so, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, <laughs> taking that cue um, in the last few minutes <laughs> that we do have you before your dog apparently mobs you, um, can you talk to us a bit about <laughs> what we can look forward to uh, next from you? No, nope. sorry, yeah, no problem, no problem.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, so um, as I, so I. I was, um, you know, again immersing myself in this newest scholarship on um, the Middle Passage and, you know, um, um, slavery—the early, the early kind of moments in which African captives were enslaved and brought to the New World—and you know, a, a few questions emerged as a consequence of that. I started to think about um, laws in in the colonies related to just. Um, dis- Slave descent. So there's, you know, there are these laws that are that are passed in the 1660s that basically say that, you know, um, in a child inherits the bound or or free status of their mothers. So it, their mothers determine their status, and this is in direct contradiction to English law. Um, And so, you know, there are a lot of scholars who look around, you know, like that, who have tried to answer the question, why did they basically implement a law that was the complete opposite of the law that they were familiar with? And so they've come up with all of these, you know, ideas. And so I'm doing a project that kind of um, tries to see how, you know, African laws and ideas around maternal descent in West Africa may have influenced um, British ideas about maternal descent. Um, and this is a, probably going to be yet another problematic study for you know Black folks, particularly probably in the you know hotel oh, community. Oh, um, yeah. But you know it's necessary work. <laughs> you know, but it's it, to me it's necessary work. The work that we do as historians is absolutely necessary. We we are telling truths that need to be told, and it, it there are risks that come with that. And so there's a, there's a project that I'm doing around you know. Um, West African law around descent um, and slave descent and free descent, um, and and how it connects to the British colonial context. And then there's another project where, as I was doing the research for that project, um, which I'm still doing, I found like all these references to white English women who were traveling on uh, British slave ships to West Africa and were there. They were living in the forts and the castles, like um, Elmina and Cape Coast Castle, where African captives were being held and then you know shipped from they were living in these castles and so I'm Doing a project that explores their migration to West Africa, what life was like for them in that context, how they did or did not um, play roles or um, you know um, benefit from the slave trade, et cetera. Um, why they some of them stayed even when they didn't have a reason to stay. So I'm looking at that, and this is like in the early, this is the late 1600s and early 1700s. So those are two new projects that I'm working on. Um, Again, trying to, you know, trying to, to help us to understand, you know, white women's kind of deep, deeper investments in um, African, the enslavement of African descended people, um, but also trying to understand African people, people from Africa, the continent, as thinkers, not simply as objects of sale. You know, so um, that other project is really trying to situate um, um, African descended people as intellectuals, as individuals who contributed to the trade um, in ways beyond simply being bodies that were bought and sold. So those are two things that are coming down coming down the road.
1: Two things that not only will we get you back on the program to chat about, but also ones <laughs> that are going to cause, uh, you know, a, cause a little, a little, really a whole lot of folks to to really stir. And and uh, it's yeah, going to be a little a little controversial, but ain't nothing wrong with that though.
2: I nothing
1: agree. is wrong with that. <laughs> um and and on the project about white women um during the time of, you know, slave ships and and, and the the bidding, mm-hmm. you know, Almina as well, that I was like, "Whoa, whoa because, you know, yeah. That's another that it seems like, you know, conventional wisdom might make you think that that didn't happen. Because typically, when you think about mm-hmm. seafarers, it's almost an, ex- it's, you know, c- mm-hmm. seamen, you know, c- seamen, you know, seamen, right? Like, and so Absolutely. rarely do you ever hear Absolutely. of black, or just women, actually, rather, uh, generally, who are not yes. objects of the, you know, of the of the manufacturing the process trade. as uh, Dr. Yes. Shwandi Musakeem calls, calls the trade. And so, yes. uh, uh, wow, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I am <laughs> astounded. And it also goes to the point of how people find projects and it's, you know, you gotta go, you know, and this is what I was talking about uh, before with my advisor earlier today. Uh, for for a paper I'm writing, you know, how do you start a project? Is it do you read the secondary sources mm-hmm. and say that doesn't seem right? Let me go find a way to rebuke that, or mm-hmm. is it you know you're just mm-hmm. casually reading something you know uh ar- you know an archive and it's like whoa yes I need to find that yeah
2: sometimes by accident. It. Sometimes it's by accident. I mean, this these projects were to, like really total accidents, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: Well, there it is. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, I, I, went, into, yeah, I went into Rutgers thinking I was going to do a project on Black women who were lynched because they allegedly killed white male employers, you know, and uh, ended up in a completely different era <laughs> focusing on slavery. So, you know, sometimes, you know, you got to let the sources guide you.
1: 100%. Graduate students, I think y'all heard that. I'm me being one of them. And so (laughs) thank you so much. And once again, for those listening at the 56 minute and 40 second mark, I am your host, Adam McNeil, who is the host and one of the hosts. We're getting some more folks. It's in the works of new books in African-American studies. And today I've had the tremendous opportunity to speak to Brick City Zone, if y'all don't know, that's Newark for the uninitiated. New Jersey's own Dr. Stephanie E. Jones Rogers, a product of Rutgers University's yeah. history program, AFAM Caucus, for her phenomenal book published by her friends at Yale University Press this year, hot off the presses, entitled They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. And if you love this podcast, and, and if you enjoy this conversation, go and subscribe on all podcast platforms. And once again, folks, thank you so much for having it, having us on this program today. And can't forget about the, the ending part. Over and out.